If I did not believe in my core, which I do, that investing for the long term is what every leader should do, I wouldn't survive there and I wouldn't be accepted. But I think what I've seen throughout my career is that if you don't invest for the long term, you're actually sowing the seeds of your own destruction. Welcome to View from the Top, the podcast. That was Ruth Porat, Senior VP and CEO of Alphabet and Google. Porat came to Stanford Graduate School of Business as part of View from the Top, a speaker series where MBA students sit down to interview top leaders from around the world. In this interview, Porat advised students to think about investment not for the short term, but the long haul. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. Ruth, I'm so glad to be here with you today. And as as we learned from Laura's amazing introduction, Ruth grew up close to Stanford, where her father was an engineer at the original Slack, Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, and her mother was a psychologist. (laughs) Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. We're all familiar with Google. Just a quick poll. Who here has used Google Search today? (laughs) Thank you all. A hundred percent. How about who here has worked or will work at Google? Wow, awesome. That's 10 or so? Yeah. Excellent. How about who? Start. Yeah. <laughs> who here has bid in Waymo or in, in a Waymo self-driving car? Okay, so four or five. Who here would like to try out a Waymo self-driving car? <laughs> We're back to 100%. So uh, Ruth, it looks like we have some beta testers for you here today if you need them. Perfect. There's so much to cover from your early beginnings to Morgan Stanley to now Alphabet and Google. So let's jump in. Before your parents landed here in Silicon Valley, they had a very, a very difficult journey. Uh, and your father fled, escaped with his life from Austria in World War II. How has your family history shaped your values? Well, probably the most important thing my father always said is that education is your passport for life. And the reason he said that was very much to your point. Uh, He fled Austria having been thrown out of high school. Um, He was Jewish and uh, was fortunate to be one of the few to, to get out. His family did not. He was young enough that he was on one of the youth boats, went to Palestine. And as soon as he could, he enlisted in the British Army. And while he was um, actually fighting in the British Army, it occurred to him that if he ever wanted to live in a place where there was freedom for him and hopefully a family that he would one day have, he needed a skill that people would value. And he concluded that that would be physics. And so somehow while fighting in the British Army, he started to teach himself physics. He sold his cigarettes and somehow got material to teach himself physics, and his fellow soldiers would tease him and say, you're going to die before you can ever use this. And his answer was always, I would rather die an educated man. And he told us that story frequently. And um, it it made it hard if we didn't do really well in school, because he's like, I didn't even have the benefit of all this stuff, so you should do really well. But it was a really important value, one, the importance of education, and two, the gratitude to be in a country where you do have freedoms that so many people don't have. And so those are probably the most profound. My mother was amazing, uh, a psychologist. And I remember as a very young girl, I was born in England. And I'll I'll never forget the day I was eight. My sister was six. I know that because it was shortly before we moved back to California. And she said, you know, it's very important 
as a woman to have a career. She's telling an eight-year-old and a six-year-old that, which she thought was a perfectly normal time to give you career <laughs> advice. Um, but she, she made the point that every cent she made went to her nanny. She worked, and I think there was part of her that felt this guilt that many of us feel, that she was working a lot, but she was also talking about the gratification she got and what she, it meant for her to be able to work with others and why it was important to find one's passion. So I think they very much shaped who I am, and I'm eternally grateful to them. You took the a commitment to education and career, of course, seriously. You graduated with three degrees. In 1987, when you graduated from Wharton with your MBA, you accepted an offer at Morgan Stanley to join the Mergers and Acquisitions Group, the hottest role at the time. Within a few weeks of joining, the stock market declined, biggest decline in Wall Street history. How did that, how did that shape, shape your experience, or what did you learn from that experience? Well, it was pretty terrifying. I started in August of 87, and October of 87, on a percentage basis, was the biggest decline ever. And so I sort of thought my career was over before it had even started. And when I joined Morgan Stanley, I was of the view that I would only do mergers and acquisitions. Like, I just knew that's what I was interested in. And um, I would rather leave the firm than do something else. But of course, markets change, and opportunities change. And probably the, one of the most important things is somebody I really respected, who I had worked on a deal with, said, hey, we're going to create this new thing. It's going to be covering private equity firms that hadn't been done on Wall Street before. And at the time, I thought it was a really bad idea. And why would I want to go do that? So I said I would hedge my bet and do it half time. And within no time, realized it was a really exciting thing to do. And it was the first time I realized that if you're working with people who are really smart, and take a risk on you, they may open doors that you don't even appreciate are doors to be opened. And it, I didn't use the word sponsor back then. It probably took me another decade or two to appreciate that that's really what I was looking for. Um, but it, it, it led me to another place that I hadn't expected. And I think the willingness to be flexible and adjust as the world adjusts or as you adjust or as your life requirements adjust was probably one of the most important things. I didn't have an option. The world changed. But fortunately, I wasn't rigid. One of, one of the statistics that comes to mind is that for us, many of us are about to graduate, and half of us switch jobs within five years of graduation. And you mentioned, you mentioned a sponsor um, or, or the idea of sponsorship. And you, yourself, switched out of Morgan Stanley to join Smith Barney following a sponsor. And you've noted in the past that you immediately regretted that move. So how, help us, how did you recognize and fix your perceived mistake? Um, so I, I choose to say that that period of my life didn't actually exist, but you're taking me there. So <laughs> Thank you for indulging. So, the two of the people I worked really closely with were leaving Morgan Stanley and asked me to go and actually run this private equity coverage group, which seemed like a wonderful step up and it could be really exciting, but I really loved Morgan Stanley. In fact, my father said he was surprised when I chose to leave because I loved the ethics of Morgan Stanley. That was the word that he chose to focus on. At the time, I was pregnant with our second child. And a uh, managing director at Morgan Stanley in front of me at one point had said to a client, uh, women may come back after their first. They never come back after their second. And I was terrified that what had been a really great career where people were looking out for me 
might get derailed quickly because maybe the people I'd been working for, men, because um, there were so few women back in the day in leadership positions, maybe they got it and they had ethics, but maybe this thing I had heard was more pervasive. And I, I kept hinting that I was concerned my career wouldn't stay on the pace it was. And nobody quite got the hint, nor did they know I was pregnant, and that's why I was really concerned. And so I left, and after a couple of months, I said, you know, the culture is different, and I want to be back at, at Morgan Stanley. And I went back, and I actually spoke to um, uh, the, the then CEO and said, here's, here's the subtext I never shared openly. Which, of course, his immediate response was, that's ridiculous. Of course we want you back. And yet, because 40 people followed after I did, the door was shut. And the lesson to me is if you're thinking about switching, put everything out there. The worst thing that can happen is someone will tell you, sorry, no, I'm, you know, I'm not going uh, to honor that which you want, and you should go. But you might actually find they do. And if you find that they do, you end up having the choice you want. And if you find that you didn't, that they didn't, you don't have any regrets, because at least you know you tried. The reason I was able to go back is another really important lesson. Of those 40 people, I was the only one who got the opportunity to return. And I think it really goes to this mantra I live by, which is, the world is small and life is long. And so make sure everything you do, you do in a high quality way. And so that enabled people to say, I should come back at a certain point. And I got the call three years later. But it was, there was so much in there. And anytime someone's coming and telling me they want to switch careers, I tell them this story and say, put it all out there. Make sure you've left nothing unsaid, because you might be surprised and people might say, you know what, you're, you're wrong and you should come here, and, or here's a better opportunity here, and you'll never regret it. Thank you. That will be helpful for the 200 of us switching jobs <laughs> yes. in, in a few years' time. <laughs> so let's fast forward a bit. It's September in 2008. By this time, you have proven yourself at Morgan Stanley many times over, holding many of the titles that Laura read, um, one of which was vice chair of investment banking. But also, the economy is tanking. Hank Paulson gives you a call, asks you to please help him save the financial system. <laughs> Wasn't quite said that way. But <laughs> Lead advisor we'll to, to the that. US yes. Treasury. Yeah, thank you. I, I need your color, so <laughs> please. Uh, could you please walk us through that experience and what you learned? Well, it was, um, so July, it was actually July of 08, he called and said, I, I need some help on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, understanding what's going on with the housing crisis. And so a team and I went down to the Treasury Department. And of course, July of 08, shortly before the election, our question to him was, do you want to kick the can down the road to the next administration, or do you want to deal with this? And his comment was, I don't think we have time. I'm concerned there's going to be the proverbial run on the bank. Let me understand when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will not be able to fund themselves anymore. And this was a $5 trillion balance sheet in the aggregate. And his concern was, were we at the brink? Um, and, and he basically said, analyze every component of it. What's the funding? What's the capital? What can we do? What are the options? And um, that's what we did around the clock until September, looking at what were the alternatives. Um, how stressed was the housing market? What did it mean? What was the risk? What were the options? And it was extraordinary seeing him in action. And there were so many lessons learned. You can't learn while you're 
in that, but you have to have the team that actually has instinct based on experience. And it really informs how I think about the type of team I pull together. I want to have a mix of people who are extraordinary, entrepreneurial, will walk through any wall because they don't know you're not supposed to walk through any wall, with people who have what I call battle scars. They've seen three, four, five chapters ahead, and it's that mix that enables you, I think, to come up with creative but implementable solutions. And so we literally went around the clock till September, then announced uh, the, the conservatorship, as it was called, the, the path forward for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and went around the globe, because his, his concern at that point was, we need to make sure every central bank that holds US treasuries or these securities understands that we're really protecting um, their holdings in, in, in you know, US treasuries and what's going to happen with the economy. And came back from that, and that was kind of step one in what continued to be a pretty painful fall. Why did you decide to, to join that team? It sounds, I mean, you're not one to shy away from work, but it, it, it sounded pr particularly precarious. Well, it was, there was more to it than, than that, and it sort of goes back to your first question about my parents. Um, when we were asked if we would advise the US Treasury, one of the questions I was asked by the senior leadership team at Morgan Stanley at the time is if we were not advising the government, what would we be doing for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? And what would the fees be, to be quite blunt about it, you know, if we were advising Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? And the initial conclusion was we probably shouldn't take on this assignment. And yeah, I remember saying there are certain times in history where there's only one right option, and this is the wrong option. And Fortunately, one of the people who is still at the firm who's extraordinary completely agreed. And um, the CEO had already gone out to make a call to Hank Paulson to turn down the assignment when we had this second round of conversations. Fortunately, Hank did not pick up the phone. And so we came out and said, you know, there's only one time. There are times in history there's only one choice, and you must speak up, and you must do the right thing. And, uh, and my view was that was one of those times if we were being asked to help at a time that was so precarious for not just the US economy, but the global economy, and we had skills that would be relevant, we should, we should serve. So message there is use your voice. I mean, you're at the table because people want your voice, and I think it's very easy sometimes to forget that or not be sure you're actually saying something the right way. The number of times I've said something and then I go home and I say, did I say that the right way? Maybe I could have said it better, and then you're like, you know what? Don't keep second guessing. Make sure, though, that if you have a point of view, the reason you're being hired is people want your point of view. It's really important for me learning. Thank you. So moving, moving a little bit ahead, too. There's so Happy much to days. cover. Happy days. I think so. You, you tell me. Let's see. Uh, so February 2015. Ah, also yeah. correct Happy my days. days. <laughs> <laughs> Upon writing the Morgan Stanley ship, you went on to serve as CFO for five years. Uh, you consulted Silicon Valley executive and coach Bill Campbell about what you might do next. You reportedly told him that you didn't want another CFO job. Correct. I was very clear-minded about that. We'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> what made the Google CFO job different or compelling? So um, you, you've got the chronology right. I've sort of gone through coming out of what was a really painful period for Morgan Stanley as well. And uh, we worked over the 
ensuing number of years to really position Morgan Stanley, I think, quite well. I think the CEO, James Gorman, is extraordinary, and it was wonderful working with him. But I sort of reached that point where I said, you know, I, I, wanted, I don't want to look back in five years and say, why did I do that next five years? And what's the next mountain that is out there that's going to be really exciting, that I can be proud of? And to leave Morgan Stanley and CFO there, I'm like, I don't want to just go do that. And so I thought I knew I didn't want to just do that. I didn't want to be a CFO. And uh, so I went to Bill Campbell, an extraordinary person. Book just came out about him, The Trillion Dollar Coach, that really gives his words of wisdom. And it was really just to get some guidance, how to think about what that next chapter might be. And he did ask me, so do you want to be CFO? And I'm like, no, the one thing I know is I don't want to be CFO. And he kept returning to that question. And after about two hours, he ended with that question and said, so the one thing you know is you don't want to be CFO. And I said, correct. And he said, then I have the perfect job CFO of Google. And within, <laughs> literally within a second, I said, well, if you're serious, of course I'm interested in that. And <laughs> as I told you, when the facts change, I'm flexible. So it hadn't even occurred to me. And it's, you know, Google was a company that um, I had loved for a really long time. First invested, fortunately, through an angel fund in 1998, was um, part of the IPO back in 2004, thought, the, you know, thought and think the founders are extraordinary, the mission is really inspiring. And so it, it, I left his home still not believing it was possible, but it was, it's just a, it's an amazing place to be. When you joined, Google was known for its slogan, don't be evil. Less so its processes, arguably. Um, <laughs> you led the way to financial rigor, including by having managers set business milestones and even factor in the cost of employee stock options into their budgets, something they hadn't been doing before. This was leadership in the truest form. It wasn't easy, and it wasn't popular. Your focus on return-adjusted innovation earned you nicknames like Ruthless, um, <laughs> from, I was called Ruthful last week. It was not bad. I was like, I'm like <laughs> progress. It's very creative yeah, of them. Very. And this was this was from people who uh, were accustomed to a more freewheeling culture. How did you balance the trade-off of instilling discipline with the appearance of curtailing Google's innovative side? Well, first, I think if I did not believe in my core, which I do, that investing for the long term is what every leader should do, I wouldn't survive there and I wouldn't be accepted. But I think that what I've seen throughout my career is that if you don't invest for the long term, you're actually sowing the seeds of your own destruction. And I actually learned that really early on at Morgan Stanley. I had the opportunity to work on um, an M&A deal, the hostile defense of Gillette. And that deal was subsequently written up in the book from good to great. And the reason was Gillette was the subject of this hostile takeover. We were asked to find a way to defend them. But the CEO at the time, Colin Mockler, I'll never forget it, the most extraordinary man, said, you can do anything you want, but you can't touch my R&D budget. And I will not tell you what it's for, but I will tell you that I do not want to be independent if I do not have those R&D dollars. And at the time, it was frustrating. We're like, we need some of it. We've got to have some of it. And he was adamant. We were able to keep the company independent. And years later, only years later, did we learn that was the sensor razor. 
And he was right when he said, without that R&D budget, without planning for the future, it's just not worth it. So the most important point is I do believe it's imperative to invest for the long term. But I think the other thing is people need to make choices. And that sort of goes to the financial crisis. I learned so many things working with Hank Paulson. One of the things he said was that you have to have um, the, the, the will and the means. And too often by the time you have the will, namely the political will, you no longer have the means. And when I moved out here from New York and I was often asked about the financial crisis, I thought that was a bit odd because things are glorious and growing out here and that's very different than the days in the financial crisis. But then I realized that some of those lessons were as relevant here as they were during the financial crisis, which is don't waste the really good time and spend without or invest without care to whether it's a great idea or a mediocre idea just because you can. Put your effort behind the things that matter. Make sure that you, when you have the means, you also have the will. And so all I was trying to do and have been trying to do is create the visibility into the data so that our amazing business partners can make the choice. It's not me making the choice. I think that would be grossly arrogant to think that if you're not the product leader, you know how to stack rank all of the incredible things you're working on. But until people have the data, it's hard to make the choices. And there's a phrase also at, at Alphabet at Google, anchor everything in data and the rest will follow. So my goal was actually to just give them the data in a way that helped people better understand how much they were putting behind each each of the various options so they could then make choices and stack rank. Now obviously, unless you squeeze the envelope tight enough, nobody has to make choices, so that's where probably the some of the nicknames come in, but, um, <laughs> but, but if for all of you, the tools that you have, the skills that you learned here, the ability to lay things out clearly, if you anchor everything in analytical rigor, the data should help guide the best decision making. Was that something that you had also done when you took on the CFO role at Morgan Stanley? Is that, is that something that you had to implement in place, or was it there? Oh, I think that on every, every assignment that I worked on as a banker, my view is, let's start at, with the question to whoever the client is. Here's my understanding of your hierarchy of objectives. Do I have it right? Like, I want to hear what people are solving for. And it can be intellectual, it can be emotional, whatever it is. What's your hierarchy of objectives? Once you know what you're solving for, you can come up with a solution. And then the answer has to be able to be, in my view, presented with analytical rigor because numbers are a way of framing what's the opportunity set, what are the trade-offs, what's the downside potential. But the numbers actually force a clarity of thought. Like one of my dad's lines, Again, when I was a little kid, he, he came home from Slack and he said, if a physicist in his lab could not define a quark in less than 60 seconds, they did not know what they were talking about. And I've used that quark test for years with colleagues. Like, if you can't tell me what you're doing and why in less than 60 seconds, it's because you're not thinking clearly. And if you can't express that in numbers, you're probably not thinking clearly. So the quark test at Morgan Stanley and amongst my Google colleagues, they, they know what the quark test is, and I think it's a really helpful way to try and get a pithy answer, although this is not a pithy answer, so you may say, did I pass the quark test? But I'm <laughs> <laughs>
You passed. <laughs> okay, so turning to six months ago, thousands of employees walked out of your offices around the world after the New York Times reported that Google paid over $90 million in exit packages to executives accused of sexual misconduct. Your team walked out too, and you went with them. Why? So I firmly believe that um, diversity and inclusion and the highest of ethics is the way we look to comport ourselves and we put so many programs and policies in place to ensure that we're continuing to, to do things in the highest quality way, and we're all in this together. And to me, that was the most important message. We may not always get things right, um, but I think compared to every place I've seen, either as clients or wherever, I think we try at least as hard as anyone, and we are, as a leadership team, are really committed to getting it right, and I just thought it was really important to be with the team to say we're all in this together. We're, we're, we'll address issues, we'll solve issues, we're all in this together. Thank you. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing discussion, um, and, and that was very interesting to be able to, to hear about, so thank you. Um, you did mention a comparison between Wall Street and, and financial, in the financial industry. You were on Wall Street when it was being skewered by occupiers, politicians, Main Street, and arguably now you're in Silicon Valley when the cannon is turning towards tech giants amid calls for data privacy. What learnings for, from the Wall Street context do you apply to Silicon Valley today? I think probably the most important, um, well, there are many important lessons, but one of the very important ones is to constantly try and raise the bar on yourself and you know, for us, one of the really important guiding kind of mantras internally is the importance to respect the user and respect the opportunity. And we do keep trying to raise the bar on ourselves on anything that will address both, of, you know, both either of, of those very important guiding principles. And you bring up privacy. Privacy is a great example. From the earliest days at Google, there was a deep, deeply felt feeling, deep recognition that privacy is sacrosanct, that the data are your data, and that we need to make that really clear in everything we do. So Google was the first to uh, make sure that you could take your data with you. Um, all of the controls around privacy, we do constantly research to try and make them as simple and streamlined as possible and just announced changes to that again recently. And you know, Sundar um, has been outspoken talking about the imperative to support um, federal le legislation around privacy as well. We did 18 months of work leading up to the European privacy legislation, GDPR. You know, so there are places where it's about upping the bar on yourself and speaking up where it makes sense for legislation. In some places, it, it is important to have legislation. That's a great example. In other places, there are things that companies should and could be doing individually. But I think I saw that on Wall Street as well. Some companies just kind of head in the sand. I wish it was yesterday and didn't recognize, no, there was a lot that needed to change, some of which should be self-imposed um, and could be more rapidly implemented if you were doing it on your own and somewhere actually legislation did make sense. Okay, so legislation is interesting to me. I have a question for you that is unique to you. You're one of the few here in Silicon Valley 
who has also worked at the Department of Justice. And Treasury. And Treasury, yes. Well, you seconded to Treasury. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Justice was right after Stanford. Yes. Wow, you Thank did you. a lot of research. <laughs> you're you're my hero, Ruth. I got to research you. I may have known m some of this organically. Uh, they, d the Department of Justice, and other policymakers around the world are debating today whether technology companies like Google, Amazon, and Facebook are monopolies. As someone who's seen both sides, do you think that there's a point at which these big tech companies might become too big? So a quick aside, I was a first year out of Stanford intern in the civil division, so my answer has nothing to do with my year at the Justice Department. It was a great experience after Stanford, though. Um, that being said, to your question, look, I think that there's, there's a lot in the question. If The reality is when you look at um, the experience for consumers, we're, we're all benefiting from ever lower prices, more access to more products. We're seeing innovation at a pace that is extraordinary, and the funding around that in last year was at the highest level ever. So there continues to be a really vibrant um, ecosystem, which you know I believe we're all benefiting from as users. Great. Um, you talk about greatest source of vulnerability. What do you think is Google's greatest source of vulnerability? So the, where that comes from is one of the many lessons coming out of the financial crisis was that it's imperative to identify your greatest source of vulnerability and protect against it in the good days. And for banks, it was liquidity. Without liquidity, you choke. And that's what happened to individual banks, and that's what happened to the financial system. And so then I asked myself that question when I got out here. I was kind of, if I'm going to talk about that was one of the lessons, how do you apply it to technology? I think the greatest source of vulnerability for technology is not continuing to invest for the long term and focus on innovation. So if you look at the companies in technology that were the leaders 20 years ago, most of them are not still the leaders. And so it really is this imperative around investing for the long term. And what, one of the many things I love about the approach at Alphabet from the earliest days was really trying to think through and seed innovative new technologies. So in the earliest days, you know, they came up with an idea of 20% time. If you had a great idea, let's give you 20% time to go pursue it. And out of that, for example, came Gmail. Um, then was the idea of X, what is now affectionately known as our moonshot factory. Maybe you go do it 100% of the time and you try and come up with what is that moonshot. That's where Waymo, which all of you hopefully will be in soon enough, um, but that's where Waymo and our life sciences business verily came from. And, and you know, Alphabet in many respects was the third iteration. We tried to come up with a structure. We came up with a structure that said, Google, focus over here and let us really continue to go deeper in what might be those next things that are out on the horizon. But I think it really is about the imperative of focusing on the long term and not getting pulled into short termism. How does Alphabet, when you restructured it in 2014? 15. 15, thank you. How does Alphabet, when you restructured in 2015, the vision that you had for Alphabet then, how does that compare to what it is today? So time doesn't stop, but I think that the main, the core of it, and Larry said it well in his letter announcing what are the goals for Alphabet, was really to be able to have Google focus on the many extraordinary challenges um, and opportunities and 
it, that it faces and not focus on kind of the next set of things that are being done um, in other bets and you know, enable Larry and Sergey to go really deep there. And so that's, that's what we've been living. I, I have another intersectional question for you because you have this old hat of being a star investment banker and now you are you have this recent hat of leading, uh, leading this amazing company as the CFO. What do you think of the Uber IPO? <laughs> um, Uber is it's an extraordinary product. I think it's changed all of our lives. And it's still very early. You know, it's early days post-pricing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now turning, turning to you as a leader, Ruth. Thank you. Uh, Ruth has seen 750 tech IPOs, is that right? I, was, I haven't counted them all, but it's been a lot. Oh, I've been counting. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you personally spent almost 30 years on Wall Street uh, where you grew and businesses and stabilized ones on the brink of crisis. And you're now here in Silicon Valley where, as you said, you're positioning Alphabet for long-term success. What traits do you have that enable you to be successful in two very different worlds? Um, let me sort of reframe that question. Because uh, I feel like I'm, 30 sounds like a long time, but I still feel like I've got a long way to go. So the book hasn't fully been written. But what, what do I think is important if I were turning back the clock to when I was exiting uh, Wharton. Um, I think one of the most important things is clarity of thought and really being able to, to analyze crisply and articulate what you think is important. And I've already said it, but it's important to use your voice at the right time. Don't be in a room and not use your voice. I think for the underrepresented groups here, that can be hard. And I think it's much better today than it was when I got out, but the number of people who would speak over me or uh, you know, sort of to try and diminish you, and I even say it today, this may seem like a really uh, odd place to go, but I think it's a really important message for everyone, which is when people speak over you, even though that may feel like it's a small thing, it is not a small thing. Because every time you're in a meeting, if somebody's saying, you know, I don't really need your voice, I'm gonna speak over you after a while, you sort of internalize and say, well, if you don't need my voice, why do you need me? And so it is really important to stake out your place and make sure your voice is heard. And today, it's easier to do that. If someone tries to speak over me, I'll literally put my hand out. You know, I'll say, let me finish. Do that for others if you see it happen. And make sure you're working for somebody who gives you that space. Um, so finding your voice is really important, and then getting a sponsor. Getting, finding someone who will take a risk on you and open doors for you. Probably the most, one of the, I've had throughout my career, I, I could talk about people who did that for me, but maybe one of the most, most important other than Bill Campbell was the conversation I had when I was asked to take over running the financial institutions group. And I had had a career where I covered technology companies and media companies and private equity companies, really like fun stuff in my view. And then I was asked to cover banks and asset managers and insurance companies. And so probably not surprising to some of you, my reaction was, wow, that sounds really boring. Why would I do that? 
And um, the person who went on to become the president of Morgan Stanley said, you got to trust me on this. It's gonna, and he literally said, it's going to open doors that you're not even aware of. I can't even tell you what they are. This was in 2006. My instinct, yet again, was just wrong. It was, no, that sounds boring. I don't want to do it. But when he said, trust me on this, I said, OK. And then August of 2007, when you were actually at a bank, is when you first saw the cracks in the, in the financial system. And so I had not quite a year to figure out which way was up when it was clear there were problems on the horizon. That led to the role with Treasury and Fed. That led to the CFO role at Morgan Stanley. That led to being out here. So I think sponsors and having that honest conversation are really important. So I'd sort of put all of that together. I, I understand from a conversation I had with Jeff Immelt last week that a former partner of yours, that you not only have a strong voice, but he is the only, he said that you are the only person that he likes to get bad news from. <laughs> I gave him a lot of bad news. <laughs> <laughs> and to that end, he said that you have an incredible, serene sense of calm that was incredibly rare during the financial crisis, and you were the only one he saw through, through the whole storm that had it. supposed to comment. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I want to toot your horn for you, because no, I, I know you was, may not. <laughs> he was actually, during that period, what was fascinating to me about him is he kept wanting to get the bad news. And I felt when, not that he wanted to get bad news, he wanted to get what I thought was truth. Let me put it that way. I think he was hoping some of it would not be bad. But I also think that it's really important on your team to make sure that you are hearing those voices that are telling you something you don't want to hear and creating a, a space where you're drawing all of that information out. And one of the, to, um, in the book, Trillion Dollar Coach, one of the comments Bill Campbell makes is always make sure before you opine as the leader that you've made sure you hear every voice that has not yet spoken because oftentimes some of the ones who are the most quiet might actually have the new idea, the most profound idea. And Jeff always wanted to hear whatever I was concerned about, whatever the thought was, it was the challenge to him to the way he was trying to think about it. And I, I think that's an important lesson for us. Thank you. Uh, you may know that role playing is a time honored tradition here at the, the GSB. Uh oh. We, <laughs> no, want, we love to do it. Well, okay. Might you indulge me? <laughs> yes, please. Go. Okay. Get some All right. water. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Donald Trump calls. He needs a leader who knows markets and technology, no one better than you. He says, Ruth, I need you to come on as my treasury secretary. What do you say? Well, that call hasn't come. And um, <laughs> I'm, I'm really focused on what I'm doing right now. So. <laughs> Thank you for humoring me. Um, let, let me. Let me now turn it over to my friends in the audience uh, to ask you, ask you their own questions. Right there. Hi, Ruth. Thank you for being here today. You spoke a lot about having a good sponsor. What were the things that you looked for in a sponsor that you identified? Someone who was um, smart and extremely ethical. So when they were solving a problem, they were thinking about what I also needed. It wasn't just being expedient and solving one of their problems. Somebody I could learn from. Um, you know, early in my career at Morgan Stanley, I worked on a deal with somebody 
who never took me to even internal meetings. And after a pretty long period of time, he took me to an internal meeting and the senior person on the deal team, the partner, turned to him and pointed at me and said, is this the I I keep hearing about? And made it really clear that he had for months been taking credit for all of my work. And I said, you know what, that's gotta stop right now. And so I thought of one of the smartest people in the department. He had a reputation for being really difficult, but I knew I could learn from him. And I went to him and said, I wanna work on anything you have, whatever it might be, I just, I wanna learn from you. I've heard like you're amazing. Um, people like compliments, and so he said, okay. <laughs> and so uh, he ended up putting me on a deal, and the first deal was a pretty crummy deal. But we, we, I learned a ton from him. He actually is the person who got me on that Gillette deal. He then opened the door, and working on something that was that marquee opened another door. That was the first time I had somebody who I, I think actually said, let me give it a go. So you have to prove yourself to the person. Oftentimes people will come up to me and say, will you be my sponsor? And to me, that's almost akin to saying, can we have a child on the first date? No, you can't. You know, like, first, let's have a date. Let's prove I want to have a second date. Then maybe, you know, further down the line, we can talk about that. So you do have to earn the right to have that kind of a relationship. It's a two-way relationship. The other thing I learned early in my career, I was so grateful to somebody who was a sponsor, so grateful for all the doors that he was opening. And then I realized, you know what, he's getting at least as much out of this as I am, because I'm great operating leverage for him, because he's giving me stretch goals, so I'm super excited. I'm like learning. I'm like, it's, it's amazing to be in a position where you're feeling like you're growing. So it's really a two-way street, and recognizing that as well. But to your question, you earn it, and make sure the person's really smart, respected, and super ethical. Hi, Ruth. Uh, you have a lot of very unique experiences, not the least of which having uh, been worked both in the private, well, in the private sector, at the treasury, and during the financial crisis, presumably you also interacted a lot with uh, academics who were also advising the government at the time. How would you compare and contrast the different ways in which the government, the private sector, and uh, the academic institutions lead and shape our world? I think probably, um, uh, it's a great question. Like for me, one of the most important things is to find a place where you care about the mission of the organization you're a part of, whether it's in the public sector or the private sector. Being mission-driven is a critical element of it. Um, what was intriguing when you're working with the public sector is that oftentimes it's tough to, to look at, you have different constituents who are judging what are the outcomes, and you're trying, you need to balance sort of perception elements as much as the content elements of it. How is it gonna land because you have so many public constituents that are looking at what you're doing? But I think in each instance, if I go back to the work at Treasury, what were the key elements? It goes back to exactly what I was doing um, with, with private sector clients. It's what are the analytics around any judgment? You know, how much capital is needed in something? Well, you need to put data around it. We ended up, as an example, running mortgage analytics to figure out how big the hole could be 24 hours a day in three locations around the globe because we didn't have enough time to just do it normal way. And yet it was the analytics that were important. So I really feel like at, in any setting, 
What are you solving for? What's the data that's gonna help you make the best decision? And who can you pull in for the best advice? And this instinct based on experience, whether it's academics, public market, private market, is what's needed. Hank Paulson, on these weekends we were down there, he literally would pop in and out of our conference room with ideas. And those ideas, it was because he had instinct based on experience. And we were just looking for whatever the least worst solution was. And so it was this mix of public-private that actually helped inform how do we move forward. So I'm not sure if I've fully answered it, but I, I, I don't view them as, as distinct because it's problem solving for something that's important. Hi, Ruth. I had a question around uh, the large bets that Google continues to make. So Google consistently has obviously played a role buying large companies, YouTube, Android. Um, and over the past few years, um, maybe has invested less so in some of these transformational bets. Um, I would be curious to know, um, as Google continues to grow and the core business continues to be something to think about, uh, do you think transformational bets are important whether acquisitions, strategic investments, or another strategy? I absolutely think, in, as I've said a couple of times now, investing for the long term is imperative, and it needs to be, um, it needs, it needs to be of a scale that matters, that can make a difference, can, that can really improve lives. And so you're, you're framed the question well, which is bets both organic and acquisition. And I think both are fruitful. We're investing quite aggressively in a number of areas that we do view as important long-term opportunities for us. So one of the most exciting areas is what's going on with the cloud right now. And we may have started later than we should have, but we have the core engineering pillars uh, that are critical. It's, you know, it's the technical infrastructure, the data analytics, it's security, it's collaborative tools, it's the machine learning opportunity. We needed to bring it together and we're investing meaningfully because our view is that we're very early globally in this move to the cloud and it's an absolutely transformative one. It opens up new, new opportunities for every business um, as they think about what are the efficiencies and tools that, that they can um, benefit from. And so that as an example is a really important area. You look at the way we're, we're all using devices today and how do you think about what are these home devices kind of searched it's, it's desktop it's mobile it's also what are the home devices that one has uh, that enable you to to get whatever you want from for us the Google home and hopefully you all have it listen to music get recipes do whatever you want to do phone calls um, so these are you know that our hardware effort is important what we're doing with YouTube and subscriptions and YouTube TV is important what we're doing with Waymo is important we're doing a lot in health which is probably one of the most exciting areas when you think about applying machine learning so absolutely when we look at it we've got an extraordinary business in what we're doing with search we're continuing to build on that through investments in machine learning and then we're layering on some newer areas. And um, if you're going to continue to invest for the long term, you need to keep seeding those. They don't need to all be acquisition. We do a lot of acquisitions, but you need to keep thinking about where the world can go or where you want to take it. Great. Oh, one last question, please. Uh, Ruth, uh, I used to do one of those long bets at uh, Sidewalk Labs. Oh, cool. And, uh, can people hear you, though? Yeah. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> The oak hole with sidewalk labs. Yes. Uh, could you wait, wait, the about mic's coming. 
could you talk about being a sponsor now that you're more senior and how you decide to allocate that time and what that looks like for you? I'm sorry, go back to, so to be a- Can you talk about how, how you're a sponsor now that you are in a senior position and how you allocate your time and what that looks like for you? Um, so I thought you were gonna ask a sidewalk question. For those of you who don't know, sidewalk is looking at reimagining what is a city and how do we think about every element of it from mobility to building to affordable housing and this question about where does this go I think is a really exciting one for society. It kind of ties into some of the things we're doing with Waymo. What if you don't need to spend the kind of money Stanford spends and others do on parking garages and you can and put that into schools and education and playgrounds. I'm gonna come to your question, I promise. But I, when you said sidewalk, I'm like, oh, there's a lot going on in the world of reimagining what can life be, um, let alone the number of lives that can be saved when you go to self-driving cars. But you asked a different question, sponsors. Um, look, I think that to me it's exciting when you look at people who are trying to figure out where to next. I, as I've said many times, I am so grateful and can name so many sponsors who've really been key to my career. So my view is that I try and spend time every week um, and in structured settings and, and that individually or with groups because I think there are a couple of ways that you can go about actually helping people as they're thinking about what next. Uh, and it's really about in, investing in someone's career and helping them understand what are their options. To me, we owe it to our teams to understand what the career kind of the arc of a career can be. Um, I'm literally going through with my team now. So we're, and my question is, on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is high and one is low, how happy are you? Will you how long do you want to be here? What do you want next? What's important to you? And those conversations are really valuable conversations. I like to set the tone and, and drive those, and that to me is about sponsoring my team. But then I'm also sending out a note to all of my team that says, okay, I just finished that. If I have the time to do it, I want my team to be doing it with their team. And so ensuring you're in a place where those types of practices cascade is really important. Ruth, half of us here will have graduated next month. Congratulations, all of you. Why don't we see the hands from the uh, about to graduate? Wow, awesome, awesome, very exciting. A lot of exciting things ahead of you. I will assure you that I had no idea I would be in this role when I was the equivalent of your seat and life is really wonderful. <laughs> Case in point. You are our last hope for our final view from the top wisdom. <laughs> I thought I'd ask you some questions that I know are keeping us all up at night. Um, are, you, are you ready for a lightning round? Sure, go for it. Okay. Watch Game of Thrones or eat ice cream at Sultan's Draw? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, what if I don't do either? My husband likes Game of Thrones. My kids like Game of Thrones. It gives me a couple hour break to go do what I want. <laughs> um, Iceland is a fun trip if you want to go there. So yeah, that's the truth. Excellent. How about go into tech or finance? Ooh. <laughs> well, I found my cake and eat it, too, because I'm doing both. but. Um, Look, I think that go, I view, this is a, maybe a little old fashioned, but I, I tell my kids this still, so I hope it's good advice. I feel like the experiences you're about to have are a paid postgraduate education. Don't view it as, well, as you said, on average it's five years and then you go do something else. Be at the place where you can learn a ton, you're proud to be there, it has the ethics and culture you want, and you're working with someone extraordinary. 
Who knows where that's gonna take you? And if that is tech first or finance first and it resonates with you, you are not shutting doors, you are opening doors. And just like being here at GSB opens more doors for you, just make sure that that's what you're doing because you're on a journey and you're very, very early. And so I am firmly of the view I wouldn't have had this opportunity had I not done my prior one. And one thing led to another. So I'm not trying to skirt your answer, but I really think it is more about the people and quality of what you're doing um, rather than should it be tech or healthcare or something else unless you have this unbelievable like commitment and dying passion for that. Should we pay off student debt or invest in retirement savings? Oh. <laughs> wow. Um, I'd get rid of that student debt. <laughs> we All can right. do the rest later. Should we have kids now or later? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Should we join a company or found a company? Oh, man. Um, you know, I would have been a horrible founder of a company, and I'm not so bad at a company, but you know, there are others who are just the opposite. Again, don't regret anything. I remember early on reading Jeff Bezos' No Regrets point, which is when he was looking to leave D.E. Shaw, a hedge fund, to create this crazy idea, this bookseller, I think his parents said to him, what are you doing? That, you know, I don't know if he'd paid off his student loans at that point. But he said, I don't want to have regrets. I'd rather try and fail than never try at all. So I think at the, note, you know, the regrets analysis is actually really good. Don't ever regret something. You've got plenty of time. Big data or bite-sized data? <laughs> huh? <laughs> I think there's a lot that's phenomenal that we're, we're living in, like we haven't talked that much about AI and machine learning, but we are living in an extraordinary, am I not supposed to, am I supposed to have one word Please, answers? no, it's okay. <laughs> we're living in an extraordinary time. You know, when I look at what um, AI, machine learning, and, and building on data can do, it's not only the fun stuff, like if you were using um, one of our Pixel phones and our photos, Google Photos, you can take pictures and sort by person, by hug, by whatever you want. You can go to any country and translate into any language. But you also, to me, what's super exciting is what's going on, I've already mentioned it, with healthcare. You know, as an example, one of the most amazing areas is what's going on with, with um, scans and pathology reports, reading reports. In the area of breast cancer, we've just recently had this extraordinary breakthrough where the accuracy of diagnosing stages of breast cancer is meaningfully better with the tools of machine learning. And I, you know, as an example, I think it's um, in one of four instances when doctors are reading pathology reports, uh, they, over a, a different periods of time, they change their diagnosis of the staging. Staging is critical because it tells you what kind of intervention is needed how far along you are. And what's also extraordinary is the percentage of time they miss early stages of metastatic cancer is actually quite remarkable. From our early research, what we're seeing is in almost all cases, when you're looking at pathology reports, biopsies, you, the machine learning is able to come up with what is, are signs of early stage metastatic cancer. Why is this so exciting? Because it's building on data in ways that is a tool for doctors. And what they're saying 
is this enables them to focus on the tough stuff. It enables them to go deeper. It enables them to know when to intervene at an early space. As a cancer survivor myself, I look at this and I say, it's sort of akin to letting doctors have the tools they need to be as effective as possible and spend time with patients the way they want. So I get excited about these things because I look at the ability to transform care and I look at what we have being at Stanford or what I had being in New York, it's amazing. Not everyone around the world lives in places as extraordinary as this. And so really to provide that kind of access to quality diagnosis, amazing. One more story, I was with a doctor recently and I asked him about this and he said, it's amazing the ability with the, the ability to see what's going on in my patient's body on a continuous basis rather than just the 15 minutes or 30 minutes they're with me, I am that much better. And so I look at that and I say, we're living in an, ex an amazing time. And to be able to leverage this the right way to, to address whether it's healthcare or um, you know, deaths on the road from cars, one thing after another, it's pretty extraordinary what we're able to do. And I, you know, I think we're gonna look back on this and say, wow, it's like, how much more can we apply? Ruth, thank you so much. Thank for you joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. This interview was conducted by Lepi Ja Fishman of the MBA class of 2019. Lily Sloan composed our theme music and produced this episode. You can find more of this podcast on our website at gsb.stanford.edu. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB.